Since we launched This American President in 2017, we've spent countless hours of effort to bring you compelling stories and lessons from history. We want to keep giving you the best content possible, and we need your help to do it. We've just revamped our Patreon account for our supporters. You can find it at patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you feel like you've benefited from listening to our episodes, please consider signing up. We've created four tiers of Patreon support that you can choose from. Citizen, Representative, Senator, and Governor. We hope you'll consider becoming a patron of our podcast. Our patrons empower us to access the best scholarly resources, improve our production quality, and expand our reach across the nation. Again, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident and signing up. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. This episode is brought to you by Mrs. Pamela Kelly. Pamela, thank you for your support. When a new president takes office, one of their first duties is to fill out their cabinet. And throughout their term of office, they continue to shape what their cabinet looks like. It's an institution that we take for granted. Its existence is something that's unquestioned. But new research shows that the cabinet itself and how it's structured wasn't foreordained. Today's guest is Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. She's a historian of early American history and the presidency. She just wrote an excellent book on this subject. It's titled The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Dr. Chervinsky, thank you for being on our show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So how'd you get interested in writing about the cabinet? Yeah, this is a question people ask me a lot, and I think the answer kind of surprises them. I was uh, working on my PhD, and I knew I wanted to focus on high politics because I've always been really fascinated by how people can use power and impact events and shape the outcome of uh, developments across the world. And in the early republic, the period I was planning to study, perhaps Uh, people had more power then than at any other time to to wield that influence because there were so few people in government and it was so new. So I knew that that was roughly the field I wanted to study. And I started doing some reading about the administration and the people in it. And my advisor, Alan Taylor, said, you know, why don't you go read about the cabinet as an institution, see what you can find. And I came back and I said, you know, 
I, and I, of course I was a first year graduate student and I was kind of terrified and I was like, I can't find anything. I was like, I swear, I'm not trying to, you know, avoid the work. I just can't find anything. And I think he didn't really believe me. And so he went and looked and couldn't find anything either. And so I said, you know, I think maybe that that's going to be the topic I'm going to write about. I'm going to say, answer the question of where did it come from? Because I knew it wasn't in the constitution. And so I really wanted to be able to answer that question and tell that story. And then I spent the next, you know, roughly eight years hoping that no one would beat me to it, which thankfully they did not. So there's a real gap there as far as the scholarship that you were able to discover. And that's fascinating because it's such a important American institution. It's one of those things that's right under our nose, but we rarely think about. Yeah, absolutely. I think people just assumed, well, every president has had a cabinet. And so, of course, it was there from day one and maybe even assume that it's in the Constitution. And I think they figured if, you know, because it's been such a powerful institution from the beginning, that clearly someone has written about it. And I still kind of get questions today about, you know, this is a very old school political history why did you decide to do it? And I sometimes cheekily answer, well, how many books have you read about the cabinet? And of course, the answer is usually one and it's mine because there aren't that many out there. So I was shocked that I was able to find that niche and grateful to fill it. So other countries have ministries and advisors uh, for their head of state. Uh, What did our departments look like before the Constitution? That's a really important point because there were executive departments prior to the Constitution's ratification and the start of the first federal government in 1789. So during the Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress initially pretty much governed by committee and anyone who has tried to do a group project or, uh, you know, a big meeting knows that sometimes leading with a group is not always the most efficient way to make decisions or get things done. And the Continental Congress had the very same experience. And so they started creating basically standing committees, which then evolved into departments. And they were led by one person because that was a more efficient way to get things done and take care of really important issues like foreign policy and the war effort. But those departments reported to Congress. There was a president of Congress, but he had no authority, really. He was really just kind of a figurehead. And so those departments were very much a part of the Uh, congressional structure. And in the Constitution, the delegates expected that a system sort of similar would continue. They knew there would be departments to manage these issues, but they left the details of those departments to the first federal Congress to figure out. So they mentioned departments in the Constitution, but there aren't really any details or instructions about what they should look like or who they should report to. Hmm. Did state-level departments or other countries serve as examples too? Well, they sort of served as almost like anti-origins or um, sort of warnings that people were trying to avoid. So each state did have some sort of council, whether it was a council of state like Virginia or a governor's council. But most of those were actually put in place to limit executive authority. They were usually... um, appointed by the state legislature. They were paid by the state legislature. The governor was bound to convene them and call their advice and listen to their advice. So they were very, um, very much a limiting function on executive authority. And that was something that most of the delegates really wanted to avoid. They were trying to create a more powerful federal institution and a more powerful executive. And so they didn't want to have this advisory body that would limit the president's authority. And the British cabinet, because, of course, the British did have a cabinet, and in fact, we got the language of the cabinet from the British, was also an anti-origin because Americans and the British knew that a cabinet existed, but who was in it and who made decisions and who had authority was all sort of very murky. It took place behind closed doors. There weren't any sort of minutes or or way to have transparency about that decision-making process. And so Americans were incredibly suspicious of this system, and they blamed the cabinet for instigating a lot of the conflict from the Revolutionary War. So they were very eager to provide safe advisors for the president that would not limit his authority and would preserve transparency at that highest level of government. Hmm, That's fascinating. And uh, to your point, uh, it it kind of fed into the... uh the fiction that they were loyal to the king, but it was the king's ministers that were basically putting all these terrible policies that were oppressing them. 
Exactly. Americans really thought that the ministers had corrupted the king. And so he was supposed to be the defender of their rights and liberties and instead had been corrupted by these ministers and and would agree to these policies that were very harmful. And so they were very much looking to avoid that kind of system. Right. Now, during the war, obviously, George Washington's the commander in chief of the Continental Army. What was his relationship with the department heads? It's an excellent question. So he worked very closely with Congress, unsurprisingly, because he had to convince them to supply goods or funds or authority as needed. He constantly was going back and forth because Congress had the power and the ability to appoint and then promote generals. So that was something he was constantly working with them on. And then once France and Spain got involved in the war, he had to work closely with Congress on diplomacy because he knew that he was going to be working with the French army and Navy as well. And so he had a very close relationship, constantly was communicating with Congress and usually very frustrated by their inability to act uh, more quickly or more forcefully. And so once there were individual executive departments in place and individuals that led those departments Washington worked very closely with them as well and really appreciated that reform because he observed how much more quickly they were able to act, how much more efficiently they were able to supply goods and um, the things that his army desperately needed to survive and to wage a war. And even when the um, towards the end of the war, when there wasn't as much fighting after Yorktown, He would um, often, when the army was in Newburgh and Congress was close by, he frequently actually met with the ministers in sort of like a prototype of the cabinet, um, in particular with Robert Morris, who was the finance minister at the time and, and one of Washington's really close friends. So he had had those meetings and those conversations and saw how valuable it was for them to be able to discuss things together. And you write a lot about George Washington's war councils. So he has his top generals in these councils. What were those like and how did they influence Washington's later creation of the cabinet? Absolutely. Well, Washington initially had been instructed by Congress to convene councils of war, which were usually with his top officers and some of his aides de camp. But it wasn't totally clear in those instructions how frequently he was supposed to meet with them or whether or not he even had to take their advice. So that took a little bit of time to sort out. But Washington found councils of war to be incredibly helpful for a couple of reasons. First, it was really helpful political cover if he was going to make a unpopular decision like a retreat when he abandoned New York City and then the island of Manhattan. So when he was doing that, it was really helpful to have his officers get together and say, no, we agree. This is 100 percent the right choice. We have to retreat. And Washington would draw up a or have one of his aides draw up minutes basically from that council of war and describe what had happened and then send it to Congress long before they asked for it, just as a little bit of political cover in case there was any blowback. So that was the first reason he called councils. The second reason was it was a really good way to try and build some unity and agreement among his officers. These were very opinionated, sometimes egotistical, very focused on their own personal honor. And like Charles Lee or someone like (laughs) that. Exactly. And and they were big personalities. Charles Lee is a great example. He went pretty much everywhere with a pack of hounds at his heels. And as we were talking about before we started recording, I have a hound and they're very loud. And so they can be very disruptive. And having a group of them in a council of war would have been chaos, (laughs) absolute chaos. Um, And so it was a good way to try and build some unity among people who maybe disagreed. And then the last reason was one of Washington's greatest strengths was understanding that he didn't know everything and he didn't have the answers to every question. And so he genuinely wanted to get advice from his officers, from his aides, from people who had different experiences or had seen different things or even like traveled literally over different grounds so that they could talk about what was the best strategy. And he used the councils all for all three reasons with great effectiveness. And then he basically borrowed, once he decided in, in his presidency, I'm getting ahead a smidge here, but once he decided in his presidency that he needed a cabinet, 
he basically borrowed that same structure and applied it to his cabinet and used them for the same reasons. He he called them for political cover. If he was going to make a big decision, he tried to get Jefferson and Hamilton to agree on things, which spoiler alert, didn't really work out. And he also desperately needed and wanted their advice and their support. So uh, that was a really important part of his sort of leadership practices. Yeah, that's fascinating. The political cover element of it is uh, very shrewd, I think, for for him and probably the way Congress had wanted him to feel the freedom to be able to make the decisions that were necessary to win the war. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people don't realize that he was much more politically savvy than we think, because we sort of think of him as this sort of marble bust. And, you know, we see these paintings where he seems very stiff. And some of that was certainly cultivated and very calculating. And he wanted there to be that sort of reserved image that was left to history, which is why I think he had Martha burn all of their correspondence. But it's not actually who he was. And he was incredibly savvy and focused on these political issues. And so was eager to make sure he took advantage of whatever opportunity was available to him. So we get to 1787, the war is over, and now the framers are drafting the Constitution. How did they envision uh, what the executive branch would look like in the new republic? This is a really important point because the cabinet was omitted from the Constitution very intentionally, and that's not something people necessarily realize. So the framers absolutely wanted there to be a strong a powerful executive and an individual single president. And they knew that that person would need advice and support. And so they gave two options for the president to get that advice and support in a moment of crisis. The first was that there's a clause in Article 2, Section 2, that says that the Senate will advise and consent on treaties and foreign appointments. And today that typically means like a rubber stamp or a veto. But at the time, they really expected that the Senate would serve as a council of foreign affairs. The Senate was relatively small. In 1789, only 22 people were in the Senate, and they were indirectly elected through their state legislatures. So they were considered safe, meaning that the state could remove them if they gave bad advice. They tended to be men of experience and knowledge, and so they thought that they would be good advisors. And we know that that was the expectation because in the ratification debates in the various states, when people brought up the fact that the president didn't have a built-in council, a lot of the defenders of the constitution said, no, 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 he has the Senate. The Senate will advise on foreign affairs and will be very helpful. So we know that that was option number one. Option number two is also in article two, section two, and it says that the president may request written advice from the department secretaries on issues pertaining to their departments. And that phrase was incredibly carefully constructed because they didn't want the president to be talking to people about things that they knew nothing about. So they wanted the president to have knowledgeable advisors. And if a a person was going to be appointed to head a department and approved by the Senate, then they thought that that person would be experienced and justified in giving advice on that subject. Second, the advice was supposed to be written. And that was really important because that meant that there would be a paper trail of evidence about who said what and who advocated which policy, and they could hold those people and the president responsible for making bad decisions. So this gets back to the concerns about the British cabinet, where there was a lot of confusion about what was happening behind closed doors. And that written component was supposed to um, take away that concern, to, to give people a sense of what was happening in these meetings. It was a method of accountability, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. And, exactly. And of course, as the founders, we all know, had not anticipated the political parties as they as happened, they didn't think of that component with the Senate. So it's it's fascinating to imagine the Senate. Uh, it's almost inconceivable now to think of the Senate as basically part of the president's having a role in the executive branch, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, people ask me that a lot. They'll say, you know, what what would have happened if... Uh, George Washington visited the Senate in 1789, and that meeting went very badly. What had ha- what would have happened if that meeting hadn't went badly and the Senate had offered good advice? Now, obviously, the Senate is much larger now, and 100 people would be catastrophically ridiculous to try and imagine them advising the president. But I think that 
something more like the, you know, there's a committee on, um, on foreign policy now and on diplomacy. And maybe that committee would have been responsible for advising the president or advising the president on behalf of the entire Senate. It's hard to say, of course, these are all, you know, speculation because it's obviously not how it worked, but it is fascinating to think about. Right. So George Washington becomes president 1789. He seems to always convey an understanding that everything he did would become precedent for future presidents. What went into his cabinet selections? Yeah, so it's really important to acknowledge that when he was selecting the department secretaries, he wasn't selecting them to be in the cabinet because the cabinet didn't exist yet in 1789. Washington didn't convene the first cabinet meeting until two and a half years into his administration. But when he was selecting people to run the departments, he had a couple of different factors that he really paid attention to. First, he had to know them and have some sort of trust-based relationship, which makes sense because if you're going to ask people for advice, you want to be able to trust it. So that's kind of a no-brainer. He, uh, both um, all of Alexander Hamilton, Henry Knox, and Edmund Randolph had all served with him in the war, and then he had maintained relationships with them afterwards. And while he wasn't quite as close with Thomas Jefferson, they had served together in the Continental Congress and then had maintained a correspondence when Jefferson was the governor of Virginia. So that was the first factor. The second factor was that they had to be knowledgeable and experienced, especially about things that Washington didn't necessarily know. So Thomas Jefferson is a great example. He was fluent in French, which was the language of diplomacy at the time. Washington's French was pretty terrible. Jefferson had been all over Europe and in the major centers of diplomacy. Washington had only left the country once and had gone to Barbados as a teenager. So he didn't know how Versailles or the court of St. James worked and Jefferson did. So that was really important knowledge. But similarly, Alexander Hamilton had sort of a brilliant financial mind and could come up with really creative solutions to the really big economic problems that were facing the country. And while Washington understood the proposals that Hamilton was putting forth, he didn't necessarily have the ability to come up with them himself. So that sort of knowledge to complement Washington's experience was essential. Then the third part was that they had to represent different parts of the nation. Now, obviously, they were all white guys. So the concept of diversity was not what we would consider the same in 2020. But they, at the time, they appeared to be diverse to the American people because they came from different parts of the country. They represented different economic experiences. Jefferson was born into a very wealthy plantation-owning, slave-owning family, whereas Hamilton, of course, was born to an unwed mother in the Caribbean and had sort of you know, built his way up from nothing. They also represented different factions of the country. So Hamilton was very close to the merchant and banking elite and trade and understood sort of urban centers where, again, Jefferson was much more of a spokesman for the yeoman or large plantation-owning farmer. And that was really important because there was no nationalism at the time. People were, you know, very devoted to their states and maybe sort of their regions, but they had very tenuous ties to this new federal government. And so it was a way for Washington to allow people to feel like they were represented in the new government, to allow them to start to build some sort of emotional connections to what the presidency and the federal government would be. And that process has has mostly continued um, up through the president, up through the present, most presidents tend to follow that example and they try and pull together a diverse cabinet that represents the varieties of the American experience. And in the 21st century, we, of course, include race and gender and sexual orientation and religion and background and education and all those things. But that concept of diversity as a form of representation is really important. And so you, you talked about Washington having a uh close familiarity with the people he appointed. And also, he fostered kind of those relationships while in the cabinet. What did he do to do that during his presidency? That's right. So Washington borrowed, uh, this was another concept that he borrowed from the war, which was that his secretaries were considered his official family, just like his officers and his aides de camp had been. And so what that meant was they would go to the theater together. They would attend state dinners that he hosted with 
justices and foreign diplomats and um, local dignitaries or, you know, people who were visiting. They attended what he called family dinners. So sometimes in the middle of a cabinet meeting, if they had been talking for a really long time and they kind of needed a break, they would go downstairs and they would have dinner together and then go back and try and resume and come up with some sort of a solution. So they were very much a part of Washington's daily life and the fabric of the executive branch and that social component Washington hoped would smooth over any hurt feelings or disagreement. That worked a little bit better in the military than it did in the presidency, partly because of who was in his first cabinet, but it was a very important part of his strategy to managing the executive branch. If only we could have been flies on the wall during those meetings. I'm sure we'd love to have heard what they said. Oh, I'm sure they were absolutely crazy. So one thing you talk about is how the cabinet worked together to boost executive power. And that's fascinating because Thomas Jefferson is often known as an advocate for minimal government and uh, limitations on the powers of the executive. And the fact that during that time, there were fears of too powerful uh, an executive. How did they do that? How did they boost executive power? Um, Yeah, so that's a really, um, that's one of the contributions that I hope to make is by looking at these instances where the cabinet actively tried to create more authority and more jurisdiction for the president to act, not to boost their own authority, but to boost the president's authority. So for example, um, the neutrality crisis in 1793, technically foreign policy is supposed to be decided by both the president and the Senate. Uh, under the terms of the Constitution. And so when it was clear that some sort of action was going to be necessary to keep the United States out of this sort of burgeoning international conflict started between France and Great Britain, Washington decided that he would issue a basically a proclamation of neutrality and then work hard to keep citizens out of the war and to enforce that neutrality when foreign actors didn't necessarily respect the rules of neutrality. He did all of that without convening a session of Congress, without consulting with the Senate. And when they came back into session later that fall, they basically agreed to everything that the president had done, which set a precedent that the president had all of this authority over diplomacy and foreign affairs. And Washington did so with the explicit encouragement and participation and creativity of the cabinet. They were very much a part of that, including Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson was really um, the the go-between between the French minister and the administration. And at times he sort of was overly sympathetic to the, the French minister, even when he was very clearly flouting the rules. But at the end, he defended the presidency and he defended Washington. And um, he found that to be politically pretty painful. Yeah, because his uh, close associate, James Madison, was saying that this was not under the power of the president to be able to declare neutrality, as far as I understand. Yeah, he definitely raised questions about that, including in letters to Jefferson saying, you know, did this come up in the cabinet? These, this, this doesn't quite seem right to me. These, there are some constitutional concerns here. And um, by the end of 1793, most Republicans had sided with Washington because Janae's behavior was, Janae was the French foreign minister, was pretty flagrant. Um, but, uh, one of the reasons that Jefferson insisted upon leaving the administration and retiring was because he did feel obligated to defend the powers of the presidency and didn't really want to. Hmm. So where did John Adams fit in all of this? Here's the vice president. Vice president's a modern, uh, participant in the cabinet, but he's kind of an afterthought during that time. Where did he fit in, in the cabinet, the vision of the cabinet? Or did he not? <laughs> oh, poor John Adams. Um, I have a I have a real soft spot in my heart for John Adams, and he had a rough time as vice president. So um, initially, when Washington and Adams first took office, Washington sent Adams several letters asking for his input about how he should create sort of a social atmosphere, what activities the president should do, lots of those fuzzy details that aren't provided in the Constitution. But then pretty quickly, Adams becomes kind of a non-factor, and he was never invited to a cabinet meeting. He was never invited to participate in that decision-making process. In the final years of Washington's presidency, he did exchange some more letters with Adams and asked for his input on some issues like the Jay Treaty. 
And it is very possible because Adams and Washington did socialize a lot. They Adams often went to the theater with Washington and the secretaries or went over to Washington's for dinner or went writing or visited gardens. So it is possible that they talked about these issues. And unfortunately, we just don't have a record of it. But Washington never invited Adams to a cabinet meeting. And um, we don't really have evidence as to why. We can only really speculate because Washington didn't write that down. But my speculation is that Adams had sort of burned his political credibility in the summer of 1789 when Congress was trying to figure out what to call the president. And Adams had advocated for a very ostentatious sort of monarchical sounding title. And that had been very unpopular. And so a lot of people made fun of him for that. And he, I think Washington maybe just didn't trust his judgment as much. And they weren't as close to begin with because Adams had been critical of Washington during the war and Washington knew it and didn't particularly forgive that kind of behavior. But what's interesting is that the more modern experience where the vice president is more active in the cabinet is actually an aberration. For most of American history, the vice president has not been involved and has not been involved in the administration really at all. And so it's been up to the president if they want to have a close relationship with the VP, they can, but they're not obligated to. So Washington made use of advisors outside his cabinet as well. Uh, Madison, even Supreme Court Justice, uh, Chief Justice Jay Why did Washington do this and how did this fit into his vision of the cabinet? Well, initially, Washington really consulted with Madison a lot. They had been very close. Madison had been instrumental in getting Washington to actually go to the Constitutional Convention. And they had worked quite closely together on their proposals that Madison put forth during the convention. And in Washington's first year in office, especially Madison helped him write the first address to Congress. He then, Madison then wrote the address from Congress back to Washington, and then he wrote Washington's response back to Congress. So he was basically having a conversation with himself, which is a pretty funny thing to realize. Um, And partly that was because the official executive departments hadn't been created yet. Washington, or excuse me, the first federal Congress didn't pass the last of that legislation until September 1789. And so those people, Hamilton, Knox, Randolph, and Jefferson weren't yet in office. And so Madison was sort of a natural advisor because he and Washington were quite close. But by 1791, he was really vocal in his opposition to Hamilton's treasury legislation. And Washington took that as sort of a personal affront. And so that relationship really soured. And late 1791 was when the cabinet actually met for the first time. So by that point, he wasn't really getting along with Madison all that well. Um, Chief Justice John Jay and Washington had known each other for quite some time and Washington really respected him. There's some evidence that he actually asked Jay to be his secretary of state first. And Jay said, no, I'd really prefer to be the chief justice. I'm not sure actually how strong that evidence is, but it's certainly a possibility because Jay had been the acting secretary of foreign affairs and stayed in that position um, almost until Jefferson took office. So he respected Jay's diplomatic experience and his wisdom a great deal and often consulted with him sort of outside of the cabinet and actually encouraged the cabinet to sometimes um, discuss things with Jay and meet with Jay to talk about various issues and their legal implications. Um, So, and Jay didn't really seem to mind wearing multiple hats. Uh, He was very happy to provide that sort of insight and input um, outside of his role as chief justice. So how did Washington's cabinet Uh, evolved throughout his presidency, ideologically, in terms of quality. I mean, everyone remembers the first cabinet he had with the the Hamilton and Jefferson and the the bigwigs. How did it go by the end of his presidency? Yeah, so I've mentioned this a couple of times, but Washington convened the first cabinet meeting on November 6th, 1791. And um, I hammer that date home because I think it's so important to remember that they weren't there on, you know, the cabinet was not there on day one, even though those individuals were in office early on. So Washington convened a couple of meetings in late 1791, a handful in 1792, and then cabinet meetings really exploded in 1793 and 1794 around the neutrality crisis and the Whiskey Rebellion. 
and they had a high point of about 51 meetings that Washington arranged in 1793. After that, um, it's like one Jefferson, a week, one a week, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, and, and sometimes they didn't meet cause they were out of town or whatever. So some weeks they end up meeting like five times per week, which wow. they often met for several hours a time at a time. And Hamilton and Jefferson despised each other at that point. So you can imagine how fun those meetings were to sit in on. Um, but Jefferson retired at the end of 1793, Knox retired at the end of 1794, Hamilton retired at the end of January, 1795. And so by the summer of 1795, Randolph was the only original remaining cabinet member. And at this point he had been um, promoted to secretary of state after Jefferson's retirement. And he became by far and away the most important advisor to Washington for that period of time because Washington trusted him. Washington valued his insight and frequently shared information with him that he kept from the other new secretaries. So the replacements I affectionately refer to as the B team. And I do so because Washington frequently wrote in his letters that they were not up to the tasks and the demands of the government. So he didn't really think they were the same or as good enough as the original secretaries either but he had a really hard time getting people to fill the empty positions. In fact, he had gone to no fewer than six people to try and fill the secretary of state position after Randolph resigned before finally settling on Timothy Pickering. So once he had those people in office, Washington really didn't convene very many cabinet meetings. He preferred one-on-one -on -one consult consultations and written advice, and um, he still continued to consult with people outside of the administration, like Jay and Hamilton. But the cabinet, whether he, you know, felt like he didn't trust them or he didn't need that input or whatever, he just decided he didn't want to have regular meetings, and so he only had a couple in the final years of his administration. But that left a really, really important precedent which was that the cabinet did not have a right to be a part of that decision-making process. They did not have a right to give their opinion and to have it be heard. And they were only allowed to do so when the president asked for it. And that was a really important precedent that Washington left for his successors. It's kind of a, uh, you kind of feel bad for Washington getting turned down left and right by people for, <laughs> for these positions. And it, it, it's hard to imagine yeah, and most of them were his friends, too. So, like, his friends were turning him down. Right, right. Yeah, that must have been so frustrating. Um, so, uh, did Washington believe he was creating a permanent institution in the cabinet? Uh, how did he envision future presidents, whether they would tinker with the system or, or anything like that? I think that Washington, I mean, it's it's a challenge because he often didn't write down how he felt about things. So, we kind of have to read between the lines but I believe that he felt that the president's advisors were a very personal thing and what worked for one president wouldn't necessarily work for another. And so he wanted to leave a system that was very flexible and his successors could use how they best saw fit. So if it made sense for them to convene regular cabinet meetings, great. But if it didn't, then that was okay too, which is why he never asked for any sort of legislation or encouraged any sort of legislation to um, sort of codify the creation of the cabinet. There is still to this day no legislation that determines how regularly the cabinet should meet or whether or not the president should actually take their advice. And I think that was quite intentional. And he understood that the people that followed in his footsteps would certainly be guided by his model, but they wouldn't necessarily have the same needs or experiences that he did. So how did the cabinet... Uh evolve in the immediate aftermath of Washington's presidency? How did his immediate successors run their cabinet compared to him? Well, perhaps surprisingly to some, they actually adopted an awful lot of Washington's practices. So for example, John Adams, he had a really, frankly, unfair task because he was following in Washington's footsteps, which was going to be impossible for almost anyone because Washington was so famous and so well-respected. Even by 1796, when he was getting some political criticism, he was still adored and respected by so many people. So Adams, who, you know, didn't really look like Washington and didn't really act like Washington and didn't have the same background as Washington, was sort of doomed to be in this very unpopular, unfair position. 
And he thought that it would make sense to continue with Washington's cabinet because it would provide some continuity, some sort of institutional knowledge. And that actually makes sense because there had never been a peaceful transfer of power. And people in the 18th century were used to transfers of power being accompanied by a guillotine, by a revolution, by war, by death. And it was very scary and they were very nervous and they were very anxious about it. And so he thought he would provide some stability and continuity. And it turned out to be a terrible idea because the cabinet secretaries were loyal to Hamilton, not loyal to the office of the president like Adams thought they would be. And they really worked to undermine his foreign policy and his administration and his reelection campaign. So Jefferson was vice president at the time for Adams, saw all of this and said, oh my gosh, cannot have the same system that cannot happen again. And so when he was in office, he actually wrote this extraordinary letter to his secretary saying, we are going to replicate Washington's first term practices, which are that most of our business will be handled by one-on-one -on -one meetings or in letters. And if there is a big issue that comes up, then we will get together and we will meet about it. And he appointed people who are very loyal to him. He appointed people who were all Republicans, but he also followed those other guidelines. So they were very knowledgeable. They were very experienced. They were diverse um, as white men can be. And um, he created actually one of the most successful, um, effective cabinets with the least amount of turnover in U.S. history. So, and, th and that's very interesting, too, because he was part of the first cabinet where it was very contentious. So he probably took a lot of those lessons to his own running his own cabinet. Absolutely. So uh, in your study of subsequent presidents, which presidents would you say ran their cabinet well versus running their cabinet poorly? Well, Lincoln is an obvious example of a president who managed the cabinet well, and that worked very um, effectively for him. FDR had a really great cabinet. He was able to sort of play off his secretaries off of each other and would often give several of them the same task and see who came up with the best solution, which is not necessarily a strategy that would work for everyone, but it really worked well for him. Um, Grant actually had a really good relationship with his cabinet. There were some corruption scandals, but they also achieved a lot of really extraordinary things. And there was a lot of respect on the part of his secretaries for him as president. Um, the, uh, and actually James Monroe had a pretty good cabinet as well, even though it was sort of filled with a team of rivals, so to speak. And they all were jockeying to be his successor it was a really effective cabinet and he managed them uh, pretty, pretty well, all things considered. Um, there are frankly more bad cabinets than there are good cabinets because it is, it's really an almost impossible task because again, you're surrounding yourself with people who are used to being in charge. They're used to being listened to. They have very strong opinions about what things should be done and what shouldn't be done. And um, they often are pretty ambitious. And so that is really challenging. So um, Adams and Madison are two examples of really terrible cabinets. Jackson went through like three cabinets before he finally could find enough people who were just yes men and would do whatever he wanted. Andrew Johnson, of course, is a, a really great example of how terrible a cabinet can be if it can lead to articles of impeachment in the House of Representatives. But then more recently, I would actually say that um, Kennedy's cabinet is a great example of a bad cabinet because you had essentially two. You had an official cabinet and you had a kitchen cabinet. And that leads to a lot of confusion and uncertainty about who is in charge and who actually is making decisions. And it's not something you usually want to create in the executive branch. Yeah, that's that's fascinating because uh, I've read that presidents are known to either empower their cabinet or their staff. And uh, when you empower a staff, then you have the situation where assistant to the president so-and-so is giving orders to the secretary of defense, which is never something that the SecDef likes. Uh, it, would you say it's better if a president empowers the cabinet over the staff or is there kind of a balance to be had there? Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky situation. Um, the best thing I think a president can do is to empower. There is a, there is a cabinet secretary, which is a very terribly confusing name, but basically it is the person that is in charge of managing the cabinet. 
um, not to be confused with the secretaries of the departments. And so if the president can empower the cabinet secretary to manage those relationships well, and if the cabinet sec if the secretaries of the departments know that that person is valued and has the ear of the president, then they will feel well represented in the West Wing. And so that is the best thing that I think a president can do is to make that person really powerful because they can then be a really great go-between between the rest of the president's staff and the cabinet. Um, most presidents uh, don't necessarily do that, but if, if presidents can do that, generally it works really well. So cabinets used to be a breeding ground for future presidents. Uh, and during that founding era, so many of our early presidents had been secretaries of state but we haven't had a cabinet member become president since 1929, Herbert Hoover. And yet Hillary Clinton was the first recent cabinet member in a long time to get the nomination. Why do you think that this has changed? It's a great question. Um, I think there are probably two reasons. The first is that increasingly cabinet secretaries are not selected from political ranks. They are selected from people that have a lot of experience in that particular field of expertise. So by and large, for example, Secretary of State tends to be pulled from people who have a lot of foreign policy experience. And so that just means that they're less likely to run for office or to be well known enough that they could launch a campaign that would be successful. The second part sort of goes hand in hand, which is that politics are increasingly a um, lifelong career and the cabinet secretaries have become in some ways sort of po more political than they had been. And so for people, so for example, a great recent, a recent example is Susan Rice, who was the national security advisor, a cabinet level position. And um, she had never run for office. She had never been in a technically political position. And yet because of her role in the Obama administration, many people thought that she had all of this political baggage, which I personally think is nonsense because I don't think it was political baggage, but that was just my, you know, that's my interpretation. But so she was held accountable for all of these things that happened when she was technically not really in a political position. It was a foreign policy position. So I think the blending of lines there has made it hard for people with in theory, no political experience to run for office when they're then being held accountable for all of these other things. Hmm. So uh, the cabinet has expanded, I believe, to, to 15 uh, secretaries, including vice president, something like that. How do you think Washington, the godfather of the American cabinet, how do you think he would react to what the cabinet looks like today? I don't think he would have an objection per se to the size because he understood that things are going to change and evolve and there should be new solutions to problems as they came up. And he appreciated a organic development of the administration and of the presidency in response to real-time challenges. That being said, he obviously would have recognized that, you know, meeting with 15 people was maybe not the most effective way to actually make a decision. And it certainly would be difficult to get all of them on the same page. And so my guess is he probably would have had like a foreign policy cabinet and then an economics cabinet. And obviously there are some issues that defy categorization and, and need everyone's input. But my guess is he would have had sort of like working groups depending on the subject and would have found that to be more effective. So last question after all this research, knowing what you know now about the origin and the history of, of the cabinet, if you were an, if you were advising an incoming president on forming and managing his or her cabinet, what would you say? Well, first of all, I would love to do that. So if anyone is listening and would like to talk about it, I would be happy to do so. Um, so I think that there are a couple of things that um, a president should always keep in mind. First is that that concept of diversity is so essential. And it's not, it's not for political, it's not really for like a political checkmark reason. It's because it actually makes the administration a lot better. The country is huge and there are so many different types of economies and educational backgrounds and lived experiences that it's not actually possible for one person to know all of those things and to understand all of those things. 
And so the administration will be better if you can bring in people from all of those different backgrounds to provide input for you. You will have a better understanding of what the country is going through and will be better able to serve them. So that's part one. Part two, you have to have people that have experience and knowledge about their subjects. You cannot have a secretary of education that has never worked in a school and frankly doesn't like students. That just doesn't make any sense. You need people that are experienced and knowledgeable. Finally, I would say that a difference of opinion is good. You want people who will tell the president, no, you're wrong. That's obviously hard because it's the most powerful office in the world and it's, you know, comes with all these trappings of state, but you want people who can say, I disagree and here's why. And they don't have to agree with you on everything. So for example, you can have a secretary of the treasury who might not agree with you on your defense policy. But if you agree on your economic policy, then great. You have an area of shared values that you can work together on. And that's how presidents in the past have actually been able to put together a bipartisan or a fairly, you know, ideologically diverse cabinet is by finding one area that they can really work with someone. And I think that that is not something to be afraid of. Great. Well, the book uh, for our listeners, again, it's called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Uh, Professor Lindsay Chervinsky, we appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for these great questions. Thank you. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.